Okay, chapter 9. And uh, we're going to start right in the middle of chapter 9. In my edition, it's page 75. If you remember where we ended, uh, we ended... uh, Well, let me set, set the whole context for the chapter. This is the chapter where uh, C.S. Lewis, the narrator, uh, finds his guide, George MacDonald. C.S. Lewis, um, heavily influenced by George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis said he never wrote anything that he didn't, I think he actually said he didn't quote George MacDonald in, and that's sure that's true. Uh, You can even go and get a little C.S. Lewis book that is nothing but quotations from George MacDonald. Uh, George MacDonald was a Scottish preacher, uh, lived in the uh, 19th century, uh, died right after the turn of the 20th century, so uh, C.S. Lewis never met George MacDonald, but uh, George MacDonald, at least in this part of the great divorce, is the guide for C.S. Lewis, like Virgil and Beatrice were in Dante's um, uh, The Divine Comedy. So uh, we've been in this chapter, we did about half of it. Uh, One of the things that Lewis wants you to notice is just simply the sheer size, length of this chapter. It's it's much longer than any of the other chapters because because C.S. Lewis is with George MacDonald in it. And we looked at the first, basically the first half of chapter 9. I took you up to what I think and what many of us think is our favorite C.S. Lewis quote, and that's where we ended at the uh, week before last. Uh, it's um, where, where Jack McDonald, I mean not Jack McDonald, where, where George McDonald says to Jack, uh, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it, Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy, and if you want to, you can put the word God there, that seriously and constantly desires joy, God, will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. Uh, So we ended with that quotation. Again, only two kinds of people in the world. Let me share a... um, Let me share... I'm trying to think if I can erase that. Um, I won't erase it. I'll, I'll write something beside it to make them f- try to figure out what it means. Um, <laughs> well, that's down at the bottom there. Okay. The one that works. And the words may not mean anything to you anyway, but I'll tell you what they are, and you can write them down and go impress your, fr- your friends. Incurvatus, incurvatus in se. Good Latin phrase. You probably weren't expecting to get incurvatus in se today. A really, really, really important theological concept, though. Incurvatus in se, uh, if you, in case you missed, you know, you don't remember your high school Latin, that means Curved in on oneself. Curved in. curved in on oneself. Or if you want to say turned in. But since the word curve is in incurvatus, uh, I like to say curved in on oneself. Uh, starting with Augustine, then picked up by Luther, and, 
and a whole lot of us since Luther, we say that that is the human condition. That is the human condition. We are born in cravatus in se. We are curved in on ourselves. Um, I guess a modern concept would be sort of navel-gazing. But we're curved in on ourselves. It's all about us, what we want, our needs. I'm hungry. I'm sleepy. I'm tired. I'm not in a good mood. Curved in on oneself. That's the human condition. That's the condition from which we need to be saved. Um, and, and, and so the opposite, and I don't know a good Latin term for this. There's probably one. A good, I don't know what a Latin term would mean, but the opposite of incurvatus in se would be curved outward to God, um, which would include being curved outward to others. Uh, part of what you're seeing here, the people who go to hell, the people who choose hell, are the people that live their whole life in cravatus and say, and they die in cravatus and say, and even if they, and as you notice from the fantasy, even if they get there, they will still so desire hell, they'll go back. Some people, you can almost do it with every one of these characters. They prefer their pride. They prefer their vanity. They prefer their, you're going to see some more. They prefer their family. Uh, the list, they prefer their lust. They prefer their habits. The list goes on. Almost every one of these characters, uh, you see something they prefer to God. Uh, you're going to see it in, in the rest of chapter 9. You're going to see a, a, a grumbler. You're going to see um, a flirtatious woman. And you're going to see a famous artist. And they're all going to desire something more than God. Um, and, and, and we can do this in the religious realm too. We want to go to heaven because there's some folks we need to see or want to see. Nothing wrong with that, but you know, I'll, I'll give you the right answer to that. We want to go to heaven because that's where God is. We desire God. We want to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. You know, some people, it's fine to want to go to heaven to have your, your, your afflictions and your pain healed. But we want to go to heaven because that's where God is. Now, if you're, you know, um, don't mean to you know, offend anybody in the room, but if, if you're, if you're um, Islamic, you may want to go to heaven and get your seven virgins. We Christians do the same thing. Streets of gold, mansions. And none of that's, well, I don't, like, I don't like the virgin thing, but none of that's wrong. But the desire has to be for God. And that's why what you're seeing in this fantasy, this dream, you can't transport some of your hellish ways into heaven. And if you prefer some of your hellish ways to heaven, well, guess what? God will say, thy will be done. So, again, the, the point of the book is the power of human choice. You know, how are you being formed? Some people not only are formed in Cravatus and say, they continue forming themselves throughout their life more strongly in Cravatus and say. Unless they can run heaven, they don't want to go. Unless they can be the center of attention there, they don't want to go. Uh, again, that's what the picture of redemption is. We're born that way. We've got to be redeemed from that. Uh, and we can make about anything, we can make about anything about ourselves. 
And again, God is very jealous. Remember, Moses told you that. God is a jealous God. Um, He created us for himself. Our souls will not rest until they rest in him. That's Augustine. He is a jealous God. Uh, So again, what you see with each one of these characters, they prefer some hellish part of their nature uh, to heaven. So uh, I ended with that famous quotation there on page 75 of my edition, halfway through chapter 9. So let's pick up. Let's pick up. You're going to get to meet a, um, well, at least at this point, I'm going to call her a grumbler at this point. Um, you see that um, they, they run across this ghost. Again, the ghost are the people sort of visiting the outskirts of heaven. The spirits are the ones there that are going to live in heaven, and they're working their way uh, to a more solid life. But anyway, you run across this ghost who's talking real fast. See where it says, oh, my dear, I've had a dreadful, such a dreadful time. Here's this... Here's this um, grumbling ghost who came up on the bus. Oh, my dear, I've had such a dreadful time. I don't know how I ever got here at all. I was coming with Eleanor Stone, and we had arranged the whole thing, and we were to meet at the corner of Sink Street in Greytown, and I made it perfectly plain because I knew what she was like, and if I told her once, I told her a hundred times, I would not meet her outside that dreadful uh, Marjorie Banks woman's house. Not after the way she treated me. That was one of the most dreadful things that happened to me. I've been dying to tell you. Isn't that funny? Don't, don't miss his puns and his irony. I've been dying to tell you because I felt sure you'd, you'd tell me I acted rightly. No, wait a moment, dear. I tell I've told you. She can't get a word in edgewise with this person. I tried living with her when I first came, and it was all fixed up. She was to do the cooking. I was to look after the house, and I did think... I did think I was going to be I was going to be comfortable after all that I've been through, but she turned out to be ch- so changed, absolutely selfish, and not a particle of sympathy for anyone but herself. And as once and as as I once said to her, I do think I'm entitled entitled to a little consideration because you you at least lived out your time, but I oughtn't to have been here for years and years yet. Oh, but of course I'm forgetting you don't know I was murdered, simply murdered, dear. That man should never have operated. She died in surgery or, or didn't come out of the surgery well. That man should have never operated. I ought to be alive today. And they simply starved me to, in that dreadful nursing home. Um, in England, a lot of times nursing home just means hospital. Uh, and they simply starved me in that dreadful nursing home. And no one ever came near me. And anyway, you get the picture of this woman? That's this woman. Uh, keep reading. The shrill, monotonous whine. The shrill, monotonous whine died away as the speaker, still accompanied by the bright presence, that's the spirit, at her side moved out of hearing. So the the spirit she's speaking to just kind of moved out of range of hearing. Um, What troubles you, son? asked my teacher, George MacDonald. I'm troubled, sir, says Lewis. I'm troubled, sir, said I, because that unhappy creature doesn't seem to me to be the sort of soul that ought to be even in danger of damnation. She isn't wicked. She's only a silly, garrulous old woman who has got into a habit of grumbling and feels that a little kindness, rest, and change would, would do her all right. Um, yeah, she isn't wicked. It's not wickedness that just sends us to hell. 
is desiring something other than God. She isn't wicked. She's only a silly, garrulous old woman who has got into a habit of grumbling. And again, some habits, if you want to take them into heaven, you can't. So that'll keep you out. Uh, got into a habit of grumbling and feels that a little kindness and rest and change would do her all right. Uh, then notice what McDonald says. That is what she once was. That is maybe what she still is. So you see, you know, McDonald's being a little open right now. If so, if, 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 if she's only a woman doing this, if so, she, she certainly will be cured in heaven. But the whole question is whether she is now a grumbler. I should have thought that there was no doubt about that, C.S. Lewis says. But then here comes the famous line, um, Aye, but you misunderstand me. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. If there is a real woman, even at least a trace of one, still there inside the grumbling, it can be brought to life again. If there's one wee spark under all those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. They just must be swept up. But how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? The whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood, is so nearly nothing. What's the difference between her being a grumbler and just a grumble? How would you paint that picture for somebody? Yeah. One is who she is now. One is her reality. One is who she is. One is what she's become. Um, is so consumed her life, there's nothing else there, really. There's nothing. I, <laughs> I had a lady one time, and I'm so glad because I'm so glad I don't remember her name because I'm afraid I'd slip up and use it. Um, <laughs> it was in my, my first appointment here in High Point. And, you know, when I went to see her, nobody, nobody visited her. Kids, nobody visited her. And, and she was so much of a grumbler that, you know, I used to like go visit and then go home, take Advil. Um, so what I started doing to help, help me with that, I would go and, it's probably a little on the sinful side, I would go and like play a game. I could mention anything. Queen Elizabeth, here she goes, grumbling about Queen Elizabeth. You know, I could mention anything. She couldn't filter anything except through her complaining, her bitterness, her grumbling. Yeah, that's, that's the only person I think I've ever visited that I got to know pretty well. Who, you know, I think she had become a grumble. Yeah, she ceased being anything separate from a grumbling. Well, if, that's, if, if, you, if you love your grumbling, and we choose... People think they don't choose their behavior. We, we choose our behavior. Um, we choose our responses to life. Uh, we, we, we choose. And that's part of being made in the image of God. As long as we're made in the image of God, we choose. And if you've chosen that your way is whatever, if you've, if you've elevated a habit um, to the center of your life, 
Um, God will not take you take your hellish ways into heaven. So, um, she, you know, she, she gets back on the bus and goes back to where she can enjoy her grumbling for eternity. And again, part of what's being made throughout, being, a point being made throughout the whole text is, is heaven is the real place. Heaven is who we were created to be. Heaven is the reality. Hell, you're going to keep learning, is small. Because when people go to hell, their humanity shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. You, you cease being even a grumbler and you're just a grumble. So, you know, just like if you were with me last week in um, um, Vacation Bible School for Adults, uh, I hope the one thing you picked up that I said multiple times, because this is really important for theology, don't ever imply, think, imagine, speak as if God and the devil are equals. They aren't. Absolutely aren't. Um, um, to see if you were with me last week, who is, who is the cosmic equal in the Bible, in Christian tradition, who is the cosmic equal to Satan? Michael, Michael the archangel. Thank you. That's why you see Michael the archangel and the devil. You know, God doesn't have to say, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with the devil? You know, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that with heaven and hell either. You know, hell is all... Hell is not annihilation. We, we, we've been pretty firm about that in Christian tradition. That's another story, another theological path. We've been very firm that hell is not annihilation. You don't just burn up there. It doesn't end. The historic church has always said hell is eternal, like heaven is eternal. So we, we've always said hell is not annihilation, but that doesn't prevent us from saying it's pretty close. You're, you're so far removed from being who God created you to be that it, it, is, it is a small realm um, compared to, um, to heaven. Um, and you're going to see that continue to be dramatized in, in amazing ways. So she, this lady just shrunk down until she became a grumble. That became the center of her life. It became the way she, she lived. Well, after this... Um, where they're going, they're going to, well, before he, before he meets the next most pitiable ghost, uh, turn the page, 78. I just want you to see a paragraph here where, here where C.S. Lewis is speaking. Now, again, C.S. Lewis is the one having this dream, let's say, and um, he's, he's here going through this, this strange territory. Um, he's, he's, he's not solid enough yet to walk on the hard ground. We, we've seen all that. But just look what's happening to him as he leans on George MacDonald, as he accepts the help. I know some people that can't accept help. Um, Part of going to heaven means you know how much you need help, how much you need grace. Um, You know, if you're so independent and, you know, self-sufficient, anyway, you you won't get into heaven unless you know you need help. So look, look at what he says, the paragraph that starts, I obeyed. Uh, George MacDonald just said, lean on my arm and we'll go for a little walk. And then this is what Lewis says, I obeyed. To lean on the arm of someone older than myself was an experience that carried me back to childhood. I'm sure Lewis wants you to think, unless you become like a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember the big man saying that? Anyway, to lean on the arm of someone older than myself was an experience that carried me back to childhood. And with this support, I found the going tolerable. 
So much so, indeed, that I flattered myself. My feet were already growing more solid. He's becoming more heavenly. Until a glance at the poor transparent shapes convinced me that I owed all this ease to the strong arm of my teacher. Perhaps it was because of his presence that my other senses also appeared to be quickened or made more alive. I noticed, I noticed scents in the air which hitherto had escaped me, and the country put on new beauties. There, you know, there's some people that can't do heaven because they're not, they couldn't see the beauty in heaven. All thing they can see is ugly. And again, God will say, your will be done. If that's what you want. Anyway, this Lewis is beginning to see the, the, the greater beauty in this country. There was water everywhere and tiny flowers quivering in the early breeze. Far off in the woods, we saw the deer glancing, glancing past. And once a sleek panther came purring to my companion's side. Isaiah 11, by the way. The lion shall lay down with the lamb. We also, we also saw many of the ghosts. There's still many of these ghosts from the bus wandering around. So, we're going to meet the next character now. This one may have shocked you because you, you can't believe that someone would be in the outskirts of heaven still doing this. But that says something about the power of choice, the power of habit, the power of human nature, the power of who we can create ourselves to be. So he starts the paragraph by saying, I think the most pitiable... And if he didn't tell me that, I wouldn't even think he thought this. I'm not sure I think this. But he says, I think the most pitiable of these ghosts was a particular female ghost. And he's going to show you this particular female ghost now. What is her issue, her sin, her lifestyle, her habit? She's flirtatious. That's what, your, that's what your cheat sheet tells you. She's flirtatious. Uh, this one, um, this one's opposite of the one who, who was frightened by the unicorns. Remember, that was the lady eat up with vanity. Um, this one seemed quite unaware of her appearance. More than one of the solid people tried to talk to her, and at first I was quite at a loss to understand her behavior to them. She appeared to be contorting herself, contorting her all, she appeared to be contorting her all but invisible face and writhing her smoke-like body. You have to imagine this. I'm not going to do it for you. <laughs> and, and writhing her smoke-like body in a quite meaningless fashion. At last I came to the conclusion, incredible as it seemed, that she supposed herself still capable of attracting them, those men, the ones that were men, and was trying to do so. Do so. She was a thing that had become incapable of conceiving conversation, save as a means to an end. Only conversation she had could have. Only conversation she had trained herself to do was to be flirtatious, to to get the attention, to get the men. If a corpse, get this picture. If a corpse already liquid with decay had arisen from the coffin, smeared its gums with lipstick, and attempted a flirtation, the result could not have been more appalling. In the end, she muttered stupid creatures and turned back to the bus. The men weren't paying her any attention. She was flirting with them. Yeah, Kathy. 
there's almost a cottage industry of C.S. Lewis and women. Because um, there is such a noticeable change after he married late in life. After he married. This is one of the... There's some things he's written and said um, that's kind of gotten him in trouble because he was writing as a 50-year-old male Oxford professor in a male world in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah, that 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 world had influenced him. He had to kind of wa- I'm not sure where he had to wander to in Oxford to see this. But wherever it was, it wasn't a place he knew he wanted to wander to to see this person. Yeah. Yeah, it's um uh, that'd be about a good three-day conversation. C.S. Lewis and women. You're going to meet Mrs. By the way, the grumbler is probably Mrs. Moore. If you know who Mrs. Moore is. Mrs. Moore, let me just quickly tell you who Mrs. Moore was. Because um, it is a fascinating story. When C.S. Lewis went to World War I as a young boy, he told his new friend, Patty Moore, that if one of them died in the conflict, the other one would take care of the other's family. Well, Patty Moore got killed. C.S. Lewis came back at age, before age 20, right around age 20, and took Mrs. Moore and her daughter, and he kept her till she died in the early 1950s. So from 1918 to 1950, he had Mrs. Moore. Now, yeah, we've all kind of did what you just did. Um, there's a lot written about people didn't understand Mrs. Moore. He kept, when, when he was a college student at Oxford, he kept Mrs. the relationship of, with Mrs. Moore secret from his poor father. Not poor, but his, his father who was in Belfast paying for his college room and board and yeah, we, we, we still wonder about that relationship. Now, I'll cut to the chase. Um, I'm in the group that says, I don't know what he and Mrs. Moore were doing before his conversion. Again, she was 20-some years older than he was. So some people say, you remember his mother, well, you may not know, his mother died when he was nine years old. She may have been a mother figure at some point, but to begin with, he was 1920, she was like 40. He kept it a secret from a lot of people. Even at Oxford, he couldn't live off the campus and be an Oxford student. Well, he kind of did, because with Miss Moore. So we have lots of questions about that first decade with Mrs. Moore. Now, by the time he comes to Christ, 1930, she is in her 50s. He doesn't kick. He doesn't kick her to the curb. Um, he kept her till she died. And what we do know after he became a Christian, and he wrote about it, and his friends all knew about her. His dad was dead in Ireland. She became this cantankerous, hateful old woman that he kept and took care of till she died. A cantankerous, old, unhealthy woman. 
Now, if you go to the kilns, some of you may have been there with me. If you go to the kilns to this day, you can go into Mrs. Moore's room, you can go into Jack's room, and it is still like he, he left it when he died. For him to go to Mrs. Moore's room, he had to go outside and go around and go. Uh, he, he, for, actually, for him to go to his bedroom, he had to go outside and go around to get into his room because her door was always locked. They were very, very separate. But again, after his conversion, he was 30-ish. She was 50-something-ish. Well, by the 1950s, he's 50-something-ish, and she's 70-something-ish. She had turned so hateful and evil. Um, and, well, maybe not evil. Some, people, some of Jack's friends, including his brother, who lived there in the house, said she was pretty much evil. Um, whenever he, after they became Christian, when he and Warney would get up to go to, to um, Eucharist communion every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., he liked the early service, uh, Miss Moore would say sarcastic things like, so you're going to your blood festival this morning, huh? She was atheist. She was an he, he took care of her till she died, which tells you, a lot of us think, tells you the depth of his conversion. I think I'd have shot her and buried her in the backyard. <laughs> I mean, you can read over. He had to run home from Oxford to fix her lunch. He kept hiring um, servants. They couldn't get along with her. She would run them off. You can write a whole book about Mrs. Moore. That's what I'm yeah. Yeah. He, he, he kept his promise to, Miss, to Patty Moore. People didn't understand. Warney was in the house with them. He didn't like it. And, but, you know, that's why he doesn't marry Joy until after Mrs. Moore is dead. He took care of her. You know, there may have been, you know, so the, the, the cottage industry is, was there some hanky-panky going on early on? Well, he was not Christian. She never became Christian. So I would, I, I'm willing to say he might have been enamored with this older woman when he came back from World War I. And the 1920s were wild. Uh, none of us remember them, but you can read about them. The 1920s were sort of like the 1960s in a lot of ways. So that there might, but you know, there's, um, you know, nobody, you know, for me, to, it's almost, it almost heightens what I think of Jack Lewis to say he, whatever the relationship was for conversion, he ended it at conversion. I almost like that better than to say she was always a mother figure. She became a mother figure. She took care of him. But yeah, this grumbling woman, and when you run across women like this, like in screw tape letters, we're almost sure it's Mrs. Moore. You can never please her. You know, in screw tape letters, she's that lady that you could never boil the egg correctly. <laughs> it was either too well done or not done enough. Yeah, that's Mrs. Moore. So he, so he, you know, that's why when we look at these characters, sometimes we keep wondering, wonder who that, he knew these people. But we, we're pretty convinced this grumbler was, was, was Mrs. Moore. I don't know who this flirtatious lady is, but he, he saw him and he saw him. Anyway, she, she, that, that was so much of her habit, she can't let go of it. That's, that's who she had become. She almost had ceased being a flirtatious woman and she just became a flirt. And, you know, so, of course, she is back on the bus and goes. Uh, then you kind of run into a few different types of ghosts. Uh, the point of these different types of ghosts, the, 
every one of them would accept heaven if they could bring some of hell with them. If they could bring some of their hellish ways with them. But they can't imagine not having those hellish ways. So um, turn over a few pages. We'll go to the last character that you're going to meet. Um, You're going to meet a famous artist. Again, I don't know why, but some people just have a lot of time on their hands. And some people have done all the detective work, and they're sure that this is the famous artist, John Singer Sargent. And unless you know artwork, and I don't, you probably don't know who John Singer Sargent was, but he was a famous artist, um, died, I think, in the 20s. So he was an older generation from C.S. Lewis. Uh, but everything that you hear here, we think this is John Singer Sargent. Anyway, so here they get to watch, they, George and Jack get to watch this exchange between a, a, a spirit and, and the ghost of John Singer Sargent, who is a very, very famous, popular um, painter um, in the United States and England. Now, what you notice with this, and this again is the same sort of thing, you see the problem of, of elevating the ends, the means, excuse me, elevating the means and making them more important than the ends. Like, again, you know, you already, already heard this later, earlier. You heard about people who got so involved in charity they forgot about the poor. There are people so involved in evangelism they forgot about Jesus. They got so involved in proving the existence of God they forgot about God. You, you can get confused and what you enjoy doing. You forget even why you're doing it. And this painter started out in his life painting because of the light the beauty around them. That's why he started out painting. But soon it became about the painting. And very soon it became about him. It wasn't about the beauty around him. It wasn't about being able to capture the beauty. It became about him and about him as a famous painter. So he, the, the means to the end just sort of did away with the end. So here, he, here this painter is in heaven... And, um, and, and I like C.S. Lewis' sense of humor. The first thing you hear from this famous artist is, God, said the ghost, glancing around the landscape. God what? asked the spirit. What do you mean, God what? asked the ghost. In our grammar, God is a noun. This guy was just, he was exclaiming, he was looking at the beauty of heaven, and that was his exclamation, like, good God, Lord. Gosh, by the way, gosh is a... Um, Euphemism, euphemism for God. God what? So when the guy used God as an exclamation, the Spirit says, God what? Uh, what do you mean, God what? In our grammar, God is a noun. Oh, I see. I only meant by gum or something of this sort. I meant, well, all, all this is, is, I should like to paint it. So that's his first go-to when he sees the beauty, beauty of the outskirts of heaven. And, of course, what the ghost says, um, yeah, you're not going to be allowed. You, you, you know, don't worry about painting. That's not what you're here for. Just look around first. Looking comes first. But I've had my look. I've, just, I've seen just what I want to do. God, now you're still using God as an exclamation. I wish I would thought of bringing my things with me. Everybody wants to take something with them. He wants to bring his paintbrushes and his paints. 
And I love this image. The spirit shook his head, scattering light from his hair as he did it. Hollywood needs to do this. I mean, can't you see the, the spirit just shaking his head and light being dispelled as, as he's doing it? What do you mean, said the ghost? When you painted on earth, at least in your earlier days, it was because you caught glimpses of heaven in the earthly landscape. The success of your painting was that it enabled others to see the glimpses too. But here you're, you're having the thing itself. It is from here that the messages came. There's no good telling us about this country, for we see it already. In fact, we see it better than, than you do. Then there's never going to be any point in painting here? I, I don't say that. When you've grown into a person you know, really become heavenly. It's all right. We all had to do it. There'll be some things which you'll see better than anyone else. One of the things you'll want to do will be to tell us about them, but not yet. At present, your business is to see, come and see. He is endless. Come and feed. Yeah, I mean, even in heaven, he's more enamored with the landscape than God. So you need, hopefully when you get there, the first thing you'll want is see God. Um, There'll be other great things there. I'll eventually get around to C.S. Lewis and John Wesley and some of these other people. But I'm not going to heaven just to see C.S. Lewis and John Wesley and the Apostle Paul and Timothy. You know, I have to keep working on myself to make sure that my greatest desire of all desires is God. Um, he is endless, come and feed. Think about what Psalm, the psalm says, Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Uh, yeah, you've got to desire God first. Uh, then you notice as it goes on. Um, well, well the, the, guy can't, the guy can't forget himself. The guy can't forget his fame and reputation as a painter. The guy can't forget that he is a painter more than he is a a human being that needs to go to heaven. He's a painter. He's not a human being. He's a human doing. He's he's a painter more than he is someone who needs God. Uh, At one point on Obama page 85, and I'll tell you this, you may have Googled it, um, uh, the the Spirit says, just just look around. Just look around and, and go far enough into this land. Go to the fountain. And what, what fountain's that? It's up there in the mountains, further into heaven, says the Spirit, very cold and clear between two hills, a little like Lethe. Have you Google Lethe? In Greek mythology, that was a river in Hades, which is just the place of the dead in Greek mythology. But the point of the river Lethe is you go drink from it and you forget what, 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 what the Spirit is saying to um, this painter is go drink because you need to forget yourself. You know, it's kind of like the lady who the unicorns came out to and try, just trying to get her to think about something for a little while other than herself and her circumstances. Well, you know, this, this painter needs to go, go, go drink at the fountain and, and forget yourself. Forget what you want, what you need, who you're mad at, who you, what, what makes you grumble. Forget all your preferences. That, that's the river, Lethe. 
Um, when you have drunk of it, when, when you have drunk of it, you forget forever all proprietorship over your own works. Yeah, when you drink of that fountain, the word mine and I, those words just kind of go away from your vocabulary. Um, yeah, you, he's telling this painter, you'll forget all of your rights, your proprietorship, uh, you know, as a great painter. Uh, then at this point, I notice the painter starts changing the subject. Um, he wants to see some interesting people in heaven. There's got to be some interesting people in heaven. I don't see the interesting people in heaven. What does the Spirit tell them? Everybody's interesting in heaven. And then he even says, I want to see, okay, I want to see some famous people, like, you know, some of the famous painters, Claude Monet and Paul Cezanne. I want to see some famous people. And what does the Spirit tell them? We're all famous here. Um, so at that point, the, the, this famous painter uh, is told that he's already completely forgotten on earth. And that should be fine. When you forget your rights, yourself, your reputation, all the personal pronouns, yeah, that's okay. Um, but when he's told that, um, and remember this ghost was a painter too at one point, that you and I are already completely forgotten on the earth. Well, at that point he says, huh, what's that? Exclaimed the ghost, disengaging its arm. Do you mean those damned, that's literal, do you mean those damned neo-regionalists have won after all? That's another school of painters. So the only thing he can imagine is, you know, some other style of painting has won. So, um, so what does he do? Well, let me keep on going because I love, I love Lewis's humor. Um, Lord love you, yes, says the Spirit, once more shaking and shining with laughter. If you don't know that another fad's going to come after your fad, you need to grow up. Yeah, another fad's going to come, another style's going to come. Lord love you, yes, says the Spirit, once more shaking and shining with laughter. You couldn't get five pounds for any picture of mine or even of yours in Europe or America today. We're dead out of fashion. Don't miss the pun there either. We're dead out of fashion. And now look what the ghost says. I must be off at once, said the ghost. Let me go. Damn it all. Literally means that. One has one's duty to the future of art. I must go back to my friends. I must write an article. There must be a manifesto. We must start a periodical. We must have publicity. Let me go. This is beyond a joke. And without listening to the Spirit's reply, the specter vanished. Yeah, there's a lot of hellish ways he was not going to give up. His reputation, his fame, um, his, his influence in the art world, all that meant more to him than, than being lost in wonder, love, and praise before God. So this is a good place to stop because we're actually exactly on schedule. Chapter 10 next week. Chapter 10 is amazing, almost as amazing as chapter 11. Chapters 10 and 11, you will get into family relationships. You know, um, one of the th if you haven't learned that we can make family an idol, you need to work on your spirituality a little bit. You know, sometimes we make family an idol. Uh, the, the chapter 10, someone is, is, is her relationship to her husband. Chapter 11 is her relationship to her son. 
whom they have made an idol, who have, and they've turned love into this sort of possessive, smothering control. So, yeah, I don't want to rush through chapters 10 and 11. They're, they're heavily convicting to me. I hope they'll be heavily convicting to you because we can call it love and it really be smothering, possessive control. And we can have family members that become the center of our lives more than God, which is not good for the family member, by the way. I don't care if they're one-year-old. It's not good for the family member. Um, you got to keep God the center of your life. Um, so yeah, we, we, so we got chapters ten coming, chapters eleven coming. Uh, the, the book really, from this point on, sort of rushes to a conclusion, and, I don't, and rush may not be the right word. Um, the, the 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 wife with, about her husband, the mother about her son, um, the the person who so loves. Another one that we're getting ready to see, a person who doesn't really want to get rid of his demon of lust because he enjoys it a whole bunch. He doesn't want to get rid of his demon of lust. That one's coming up. So, um, yeah, there's some really good stuff ahead. So put a marker in right there.